0: serving Christ. And that's what they're doing. Our, our whole goal for youth group is to train for godliness. And, and that's what they're doing. I'm seeing them become stronger and stronger in their faith. And I, I pray that you see that too. And it's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. Because, uh, you know, teens matter. And teens make an impact. And teens change the world. So it's important that we invest in our teens and we can see God using them. Well, if you will, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. And we're in our David series, and one of the big points that we get from David is that David is, well, more so, that, that God is concerned with the heart of David, and even bigger than that, that God is concerned with the heart of man. And, and David is a man after God's own heart. We, we've seen that he's trusted God, that he defeated the, the giant, that he trusted God during the highs and highs of life, and he trusted God during the lowest lows of life, he's making a choice to trust God, and I really want to focus on that key element, that idea of making a choice to trust God, making a choice to surrender to God. You know, we make choices every day, every day, and that's not a new thing. We make a lot of minor choices of what clothes I'm going to wear, what dinner I'm going to eat, am I going to brush my teeth, or I'm going to hope no one notices, uh, where am I going to uh, sit when I get to church. We make big decisions of uh, who am I going to marry. I got a good one. I love it. I uh, love her, and uh, we have uh, uh, make decisions for our job, right? We make decisions for, uh, school, what school we're gonna go to. We make decisions for what we're gonna do with our finances. Those are bigger ones. And what I've seen about the choices I make, especially those big choices, those monumental choices, those character trait choices, is choices reveal the inside of who we are and what we're prioritizing. And I want to illustrate this with, um, uh, a story. Hit me with that next slide, Logan. So we got, uh, a jungle gym, right? How many have been on a jungle gym before? Okay, all right. So they look really innocent. I try to get the most innocent picture I could. Look how happy these kids are. But in reality, a jungle gym is absolutely a death trap, especially the jungle gym that I grew up with. It was probably about, I don't know, 10 feet tall. It was huge, but it was like made out of metal, and like you could get tetanus just by looking at it. It wasn't great. And I remember we would all, through recess, would go and We would play on the the jungle gym, and we would try to impress each other. And there was one day I had my best friend with me, and we were about in third grade, and we went to the top. The cool people went to the top of the jungle gym. So naturally, I wanted to be one of the cool guys. So I got to the top of the jungle gym, and we're hanging out there. And then there were, like, these two girls that came, and I was like, hey, hey, we should – we should impress the two girls. So they came up, and we, we talked to them, I guess as third graders do. But I was like, okay, i got to do something really cool and really manly, and I'm going to impress the girls. I was like, well, what can I do? Well, I was feeling a little parched, so I said, well, I'm going to go get wa- some water from the water fountain. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump off from the very top and show them how manly, how strong I am. I'm, I might even do a backflip in the air, and they're just going to be amazed and fall in love with me automatically, right? Okay, and that's how my third grade mind thought. And I did it. I was like, I got ready. I got to the top. I, I got my, my stance. And I jumped off. And it, it, was, it was glorious for a few seconds. I was in midair. It, it was great. But I remember my, my leg did something weird. I don't know what it did. But it like started to pop a little bit. And it, it all was in slow motion. So I feel my leg popping out. And I say that's probably not going to be a good thing. And then I hit the ground. And as soon as I hit the ground, my leg just snaps. And it's just, now it didn't come off or anything, but it, it was pretty badly broken, right? It, it did not feel great. And I remember I was lying there, and I was like, I'm sure I impressed the two girls that I, I were just above their watch. And they're like, what is he doing? I remember I was trying to, like, not cry, but I had all this emotion built up. So I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I remember I was just, like, trolling around in circles for a while. And the girls were like, what is that guy doing? Like, why is he down there? And, and my mom was a teacher there. And I remember she, she came, and she was looking. She's like, what is my son doing? He's just laying there on the ground going in circles. I was like, Mom, I really, really think my leg is broken. And it was. It was very badly broken. And I eventually got a, I was in, I think I was in a wheelchair for six months because uh, I was really, really, really small, and I, I it was just was, it took forever to heal. So they kept me in a, in a wheelchair that did not fit me, and I had like a glow-in-the-dark cast. That was pretty cool. But I remember that, and it's, it's so vividly attached to my mind. And I remember that it was just that one choice where I was like, I can impress him. I'm going to make the choice. I'm going to fall through with this. I'm going to do it. This is a great idea. It was not a great idea by any means. But I remember that, I, I think about that, and I know that choices matter and that choices yield results, whether good or, or bad. And I remember when, when you make choices that are so me-centered, focused on me, they often, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they lead you down a hard path. Because when we're me-centered, things don't usually go well. And as a Christian, we should have this desire to surrender fully to God's will. And, and our choices truly reflect our desire to be surrendered to him. If, 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 with the choices we make should be about what he desires and what he has planned for us. And that brings us to our main point for tonight. We can possess a heart surrendered to God's will, to what God wants, by carefully making four choices. Now, this isn't mutually exclusive. This isn't the only four choices you could ever make to have a surrendered heart to God's will. But we see these from the story of David. And David makes four choices. And they're actually choices that I believe each one of us will have to make. And we have to make the right choice with a surrendered heart. And who agrees it's much better to follow God's way than our own. So let's start with our, our first point. David's first choice. His first choice is, I'm going to follow the crowd or am I going to follow my conscience? Follow the crowd or follow your conscience? Now, let's make sure we know the context. So we're hopping into a story here and what we've learned from the pastor and from uh, Pastor Corey's amazing sermon is that we see that Saul is out to kill David and he's still out to kill David and in chapter 3 we see that it's the story of where David's on one side of a mountain and Saul's on another side and they're trying to find each other and they're getting so close to meeting each other and Saul gets news that the Philistines are attacking. He says, okay, David, I'll be back. but I'm, I'm going to leave, but I am coming back for you. And that's what chapter 24 is all about. So look at me at verse 1 in chapter 24. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from, the follow- from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep goats by the way where was a cave and Saul went in to cover his feet and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. All right let, let's set this picture here. Saul is coming back and he's searching for David. He doesn't know where David's at but he knows he's near. He knows he's close and that leads us to the valley of Engedi. and go ahead and hit me with that picture up there. This is what the valley of Engedi w- would have looked like a lot back then. It was an oasis. It was beautiful and David was hiding. We don't know exactly where he was hiding, but he was hiding in a cave. It could have been the cave right behind this waterfall here. It could have been somewhere close by. But he's in En Gedi, and he's looking for somewhere peaceful, a beautiful oasis. But David is looking to hide and doesn't want to be found. But Saul, what has crazed me that I noticed reading this is that Saul took 3,000 men. And we see in, in chapter 23 that David only has 600. So that, that's, that's a lot. He's overcompensating. And what we see is that Saul is actually very, very, very paranoid. And he's thinking that David is this great and, and malicious threat. And there's all these thoughts going through his head. And and he's after David. And he wants to kill David at no matter the cost. And he, and he thinks David wants to kill him as well. But... We see in, in verse 3 that, that Saul goes and covers his feet. Now, there's some debate about what that means. And what, what I think it means, it, it could either mean that he's, he's going to sleep or that he's, he's going to the bathroom. I, when I was looking through further study, it makes more sense to me that he would be going to the bathroom. That's why he was alone. They would have never left a king alone when he was asleep. But Saul, so that, that's funny to me, okay, if you think about it. Saul's literally going to the bathroom. He finds a cave, and he, he goes to relieve himself. And what's interesting is, like, even kings go to the bathroom. It's kind of humbling. Like, Saul was this great guy. Yeah, but he still had to go to the bathroom. And, and, when, and David was hiding back there. And it must have been a huge cave because David able to fit 600 men in the very bar, uh, back of the cave. But, but picture this. The, the men are watching. David's men are watching. David's watching. And Saul comes in. He doesn't know what Saul for and he's like, there's a guy coming into our cave. Now the guy's using the restroom. Now the guy's Saul. And now everything just changes. It's like a plot twist. And look with me at verse four. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. And David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. So these these are David's men, his his allies, his his soldiers, and probably his close friends. These are people he's living with. And they're asking him, saying, All right, David, he's, he's very vulnerable. What are, you, what are you going to do? What are you waiting for? Go, go kill him. This is your bitter enemy. This is your time. Jump on this chance. He's making your life miserable. And you can kill him. It's not going to be hard. His soldiers are way off in the distance. You can, you can get this done and we can be safe. And, and his friends declare that, that God said he, he would deliver Saul over. And then Saul's going to be delivered over, David. So you do whatever you want to do. And it, it won't matter if you kill, kill Saul. And what's interesting in verse, verse 4 is it seems like they're, they're quoting something in, in the past, but there, there's no record of what they would be quoting. It seems like these men have just taken some pious language and have tried to twist it. It may have happened, and God truly made a promise that David would be anointed. But what his friends are doing is they're taking this and they're twisting it and saying, David, you can go do this. It'll be okay. God won't mind. Choose to do it your way. And they they partially convinced David. Because look what it says at the end of the verse. It says, then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. David liked this idea. He's like, yeah, I could get up to him. And I I can get up to him close. And, you know, I I think about it. I was like, you have to get up really close to cut it off. I I think I have a picture up here. It's a a small recreation of it. But I don't know how it was, like how he was able to get to Saul without anyone noticing. But he does. And what he does is very interesting. He doesn't go immediately for the killer blow, the fatal blow. But he goes and he, he gets the, the part of the robe, the hem of the robe, and cuts it off. And that's incredibly symbolic. That's not just for any reason. What that robe did is it identified a royal king that had authority. If, if you were a king, you had this robe. And it was to show that you have this authority above everyone else. And what David's saying right here is that, Saul, I got your little robe, your little symbol of authority, and I'm coming for your kingdom next. That's what would have been thought through. And think about what's happening, David, because it's very similar to what happens with us. He, he was tempted. He had people tempting him, but also his own sinful flesh, thinking it won't hurt just a little bit. You deserve it, David. You went through all this pain. I'm sure God won't mind this, like, one time you, you do your own thing. I mean, who's going to know? We'll just know, David, but we'll, we'll keep it a secret. And that's like the human condition because that's just like us. When we are led astray to, to, to follow after sin and we, we have this thought in our head that one small taste done secret's not going to matter. But what's so interesting is, is his friends weren't influencing him. And, and this is a perfect message for, for a youth service, right? Because it's, it's important that, you're, that you have the right friends. And a large, if we really think about it, a large majority of the people in this world are doing the wrong thing. That's not a happy thought, but it is. It's it's true. And we have to be careful about who we're associating with. Not that we don't want to spread the gospel. By no means is that what we're saying, to just reclude. But we have to make sure we know that we can be easily influenced. I mean, it can be teens. Teens, like, it could be going to, it's just a party. It's just a, a taste. It's just a little click of something I know I shouldn't watch. But adults, let's not act like it's just a teen thing that they need to watch out for their friends. It's us too. That, that, that one friend that you know is a little too risque and they go right over the line, but you still stay with them because they're funny. Right? It's that coworker that, you, that makes you just feel a little bit different. You can kind of take a break from being a Christian for a little while. It's, it's that family member that you, you just act differently with. I don't know what it is, but I know that adults are also very easily influenced. Case right here with David, he's influenced. He actually went and did the wrong thing. Sometimes I think about a story and I just assume David was perfect through it all. That's not true at all. We see that he did the wrong thing. He succumbed to the temptation. But what made all the difference is the next verse, verse 5. It says, It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Well, that's saying his, his heart smote him. That means his conscience pricked him. And a conscience isn't just like the little cricket from Pinocchio, right? It's this, this sense of right and wrong, it, it's even bigger than that when we are Christians, our conscience is not just a moral sense, but as Christians, it's the Holy, Holy Spirit in dwelling with us. What we see going back to the David's context is that his heart was truly, in, in the verbiage the Hebrew is saying, that it was struck down, that his heart sank because he knew he was in the wrong. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I I've, I've felt that. Like, I've said something really, really fast to someone that I, it didn't process in my head, and I said something really mean to someone, or maybe it did process in my head, and I still said it, right? And I said it, and as soon as I said it, I'm like, oh, that was a jerk thing to say. I, going, I, I do this action that I know was wrong, and then as soon as I do it, I don't get the sweet, oh, that felt good, I get, oh, that was wrong. And that, that's, a, that's in some ways a good place to be because it means the this Holy Spirit's working in you, Right? That this, this man, David, had a relationship with God. That's what, what changed. That's what pricked his conscience. But he does the hardest thing that for any of us to do is say, I was wrong. And, and how could he admit it? This is David. Like, he, he is the hero of the faith. He has a deep relationship with his Lord. And that's how he knew, man, I'm not perfect. But my Lord is, and I need to straighten up. I need to do what I'm supposed to do. And we see in verse 6, he, he even, even says to the men, it says, the Lord has anointed Saul. God will take Saul down when it's time. It's not my responsibility to put things in my hands. It's in God's hands. And then verse 7, look at it with me. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. That word stayed there is, is when you look it up, it's, divided or split it's another way of like he persuaded his men with a really stern tone he said he went up to his men and said i am not doing this temptation i am not falling into this this is wrong and i'm telling you it's wrong and we're not changing he had resolve he had resolve because he said i'm, I'm not following the crowds i'm following god there there are crowds in our life and if it's not for god we would be so led astray But when we say, I'm I'm with God and I will not go this way. That was the first choice he made. He said, I'm going with my conscience. Then we continue reading and we get to the second choice. The second choice is that, should I leave this problem alone or should I deal with the problem? We see at the end of verse 7 is that Saul leaves the cave. That brings us to verse 8. Continuing the story, it kind of shifts. David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul saying, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. David confronts him. This seems like totally illogical. Because first he, he didn't kill him. It's like, you could have killed him, David. Now you're going out to meet him. But David, David made a choice. He says, I'm not going to leave the problem alone. I'm actually going to go and confront it. I'm going to face up and, and deal with a difficult situation. Not, not hostily, but I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be careful. But I need to deal with the problem. Well, let's get to what this problem is that he's addressing. We see that as we continue reading. He says uh, in verse 8, And David also rose after, went out of the cave, and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. It's interesting. He still has respect. Keep that with you. That, that, that's going to lead into our third point. But he continues and says, And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Saul was vulnerable. Now David's making himself vulnerable. He's showing, hey, Saul, you're, you're a little crazy right now, but I still have respect for you. And we continue in in verse 9. David said to Saul, wherefore, hearest thou men's words, saying, behold, David seeketh thy hurt. What was happening is that there were false rumors spreading about David wants to kill you, Saul, so you need to take him out as fast as possible. Now, this could have been just like other rumors, people around Saul's counsel, his friends, his crowd. It could have been Saul's paranoia that he thought this. But whatever it is, there was this false rumor going around, and David says, I need to address this. And not just let it go. You know, there, there, are, there are two types of people in the world. And there, it can be a bad thing, it can be a good thing. Right? There's people who, who really love confronting people. Right? And in confronting, we just read that it's, it's going up to someone to deal with a problem. Okay? And it can be done in a good way or a bad way. Or there's people who really don't like confrontation. Like, they just really don't want to be near confrontation because it makes them feel, feel awkward. Right? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of, I would say there's more people who really just don't like confrontation and they're timid, and they find themselves in a problem, in a hurting relationship, and they think this, I think this, because I tend to fall this way as well, is that a problem happens, and I say, it'll blow over. Like, it'll be fine. Just let it go. It, 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 it'll, it'll work out. But what I found is that if you don't deal with the problem, it usually just doesn't work out. Like, just magically. Like, everything's just better. What often happens is that instead of actually the problem working out, And me just ignoring and living on with my life, I actually start complaining to others about it. And then I start developing this this bitterness and and resentment as well. And what we see here is that David says, I'm going to the source and I'm dealing with this problem. And he's not doing disrespectfully. If anything, he's being very respectful. He's bound himself, saying, my Lord, the king, he's not putting him as God, of course. He's just saying that this respect. He's saying, Saul, I'm not trying to kill you. Like Saul was not feeling threatened at this point. David could have come out very threatening and say, hey, I got your little, little hem robe. I got a sword here. I got 600 men. I could kill you very fast. You better run. And he says, my, my lord, the king, I'm not trying to kill you. People are telling you that, but that's wrong. So what we see is that David is choosing continually the right path. And he's choosing to promote truth as he goes down the right path. He's not following the crowd. He's, he's following his conscience. And as he follows his conscience, he's seeking to promote truth. The truth. That leads us to our third point. David had to choose. Disobey God's command. Or surrender to God's plan. This is alluded to through the whole chapter. Verse 6 very much hits on this. That David had a right perspective. First of God. Who God was. And that God's above everything. But he also had a right perspective of Saul. Look at me at verse 10. Behold this day thine eyes have seen. That the Lord had delivered thee today into my hand in the cave. And son bade me kill thee, but my eyes spare thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. And I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take thee. We, We see that David... Is saying in verse 10, I could have killed you, I did not kill you. And this question is, well, why didn't you do that, David? Well, he says in verse 10, he said, and I said, I will not put my my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. When you go all the way back to to 1 Samuel 10, it says that that, uh, Saul was anointed, rightfully so. David also was, but that doesn't mean that Saul right now had stopped being king. And there's, there's commands in, in, in Exodus 22, 28, it talks about this, that, that you're supposed to surrender to the people who are in charge of you. You're supposed to honor them. And he says in verse 11, I, I, I have this hymn, I could have killed you. I show, he shows the possibility of what could have been. And he also confesses the action, hey, I messed up, I could have done this, I was very close to doing this, but I didn't. And he's not doing that to say, look how amazing I am, I didn't kill you. He's saying, no, no, I, I'm treating you like you're actually... Uh, an authority, and this is Saul, who's like absolutely crazy right now. But look, it's very interesting if, if we look in verse verse eight. Uh, David says to Saul, my lord. He says in awesome verse eight, my king, and he says in verse eleven, my father. Those each are very meaningful. The first one is showing respect. I actually am honoring who this guy is. I'm not insulting him. I'm not belittling him. And then. He submits to him with the king. He's saying, you're still king, not me. And that'd be really hard. He's like, I I should be king and I could be better than you, Saul. But he submits. And then he says, father, there's this care and affection. It is technically his his father-in-law, right? There is this relationship that was there. What he doesn't say is, God, you were wrong. I'm not honoring this man. No, he surrenders. He surrenders, says, God, this is your man. This is your country, your plan. I'm here to serve you. You know, I was thinking about this and I got I got really convicted to be honest because I, I was thinking about how I treat those in authority above me. I think about how I treat people in the government, and my my gut reaction is to insult and belittle, if I'm gonna be honest, right? And and a part of that you're like, well those are just harmless jokes. But what it shows is that we're not we're not respecting, right? And in no way I get like Miles thinks the government's going perfect. No, I don't at all. Right? There are so many problems, there's sin in the world, but what we are shown in Scripture is that, that, that maybe we could argue the people in our, our government are not necessarily the Lord's anointed, that they were anointed king and it was poured over them, right? But they are who the Lord allowed. And in Romans 13, we're told to honor the government. And I think about how Jesus would have responded to his government. He actually did and said, running under Caesar's, what is Caesar's? In a much worse time than we were. And I think about that, and I, I don't do that. And that's for all areas. That's for if you have a boss, if you have a teacher, if you have, have a leader somewhere, and you really don't like what they're doing, but you're not going to let it to their face. And that makes you feel better because, like, at least didn't say it to the face. But I said this really passing bitter remark to my friend over there, and we kind of laughed about it and joked. Or I had this silent bitterness like, man, I'm just really mad about them. They'll never know, but I'll know, and I'll make sure I am bitter towards them. But I think about it, I'm like, when do I ever pray for people in, in charge of me? It's actually commanded in Scripture to do that. We have leaders and we are commanded to honor and respect them. And we don't honor them because they're perfect. No one deserves honor, but and no one's perfect. But we go because God says they are put in charge of you, and because of that I want you to honor them. It's not because of who they are, but it's because of the position they hold. And he says, he continues and says, Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. David very much understands that the person in charge is a really horrible man. Like, he, he's not good. And he should probably get what he, he deserves. But just because there is wrong leadership, which I do not condone, doesn't mean we get an excuse to stoop down to their level and still treat them the same way. God is the true leader, and that's the person I put my trust in. And then everyone else I pray for. I don't belittle and I don't tear down, it's just scriptural, it's not natural. It's very much not natural, because that gives me a little bit of authority. If I, like, insult someone that's in charge of me, like, yeah, I showed them. I didn't do anything. They have no idea I did it. But it makes me feel better, because, yeah, like, I can do better than them. That's not at all what Jesus would have done. It's actually not what Jesus did at all. We pray for those. We, we can't solve everything. We're not supposed to. We are to choose and surrender and obey and not go our own way. And that leads us to our final point, to David had this decision, was he going to seek vengeance, or, or was he going to show mercy? What was he going to do? There's this very subtle temptation that we all have to get even. And I want to illustrate this, because we all have different reactions to when things happen to us. So, I got, who my three volunteers I got? I got Madison, I got Anna, and I got Luke. Come on up. All right, you guys remember what your thing was? Got it? All right, so here's what we're going to do. Okay, make sure you don't show it yet, and make sure you get in your positions, you got this, okay? I want us to see the different responses we have to when people wrong us, okay? So go ahead and think into your mind, okay? We're, we're thinking about us. Someone's just wronged you, someone's just gone up to you, insulted you, thrown you down, said something bad about you, anything. You can fill it in. You can, it's not hard to try to think of examples, okay? The very first thing we have, Miss Anna, go ahead and show us. Hey, is attack. We're like, okay, they said something mean to me. I'm going right at them, and they're going to feel the punch, the power, and I want to bring them down with me. And you're like, okay, chill, right? No, it's like that's really what we do is that we say, you insulted me. I mean, I'm about to bring you down with me. We're going down together, right? And we were just so hop onto it, and we're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Let's, I'm ready for a fight. Let's do it, right? And that, that's some of us, okay? Some of us fall into this category. Go ahead, Luke is we're just super passive-aggressive. Like, we're just like, I'm not going to say it to their face, but I'm going to go over here and give them a silent treatment, and they'll know that I'm mad at them, all right? And I'm not going to talk to them, and I'm going to say little sneaky insults, and they're going to they're gonna be like, hey, everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. I really don't like that guy, right? It's, it's just really passive, aggressive, and it, it's just it's just manipulating behind the scenes to try to make Someone just feel bad and to feel the revenge and like, you wronged me and now I'm going to make you know it for a really long time. And you're going to always be upset and wondering like, is this ever going to pass over? And it's not. So we have these two reactions we fall into. And if you're truly honest with yourself and I'm truly honest with myself as I fall into both of these, depending on the situation, sometimes I do both. And I get mad at someone who wronged me and I say, I got to fix this and I got to yell at them, make them feel bad. And then I'm going to keep it with me for a really long time. But we see what David does, let's go ahead, Madison, is merciful. David comes up and has mercy. Mercy is you weren't given what you deserved. What does Saul deserve? To be killed, 100%. But David says, no, no, that's not what we're about. That's not, more importantly, that's not what God is about. He's about mercy. More so, let me give everything to God's authority. He'll take care of it. It's in his hands. I surrender. I'm showing mercy. All right, good job, teens. You can put that on the seat for me. Great job. All right, so let, let's, let's keep going with this idea of revenge, okay? We, we see in verse 12, let's look at it together. The Lord judged between me and thee, and the Lord avenged me of thee, but my hand shall not be upon thee. And he's, he's basically saying, Saul, you messed up, and you deserve punishment, but it's not my job to give it. And, and he says in verse 13, he, he quotes this proverb, he says, If I was really as wicked as they say, man, I'd kill you right now. But verse 14, I don't have the authority to do that. I'm like a, a, a dead dog or a small fleet. The authority is God's. You know, we tend to think that we have more authority than we actually have. Like, to think that I'm in charge of my life, my family, everything. And in some ways, yeah, yes, we are in charge of things. But we think that we're the greatest authority. That's not true at all. That... We're we're no no king, there's a greater king, and he has all the authority. It's God. He's in charge. We are not the judge, jury, and executioner. God is in charge. And David says, I'm fully surrendering to God. In verse 15, he says, I'm going to show mercy and trust in the Lord's deliverance. And real quickly, we'll we'll summarize what happens where Saul responds. We see that in verse 16, he's, he's weeping. And then verse 17, and he said to David, thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. He says, you, you, you repaid me good, and I looked at you and I repaid you evil. And it's this idea of payback, that, that Saul had the, right, the wrong idea of payback and was like, I'm going to bring David down. But David says, my response is different from that. In verses 18 through 19, we see that Saul is just utterly amazed by David's mercy. And he says, I hope the Lord will reward you. And it was this, there, there's still, if you, if you read it very carefully, this sense of, of selfishness. Because what Saul's really caring about is that he's safe. He's grateful for David that he didn't kill him. But he's also saying, I'm really glad I didn't, it didn't die. He doesn't care too much about David, you know, running away for months and months at a time. And David's escapes and David almost being killed. He doesn't apologize for that. He just says, thank you for not killing me. And then verse 20, he, he actually admits, which is amazing and interesting, is that, David, I know you're going to be king. But when you become king, verse 21, when you are, just don't cut off my offspring. Just don't kill them. That was very typical. A new king comes in, old king's gone. And by gone, they're dead. Right? I, they killed. They're executed. But he says, don't do this. And David agrees. You know, we read that. We're like, man, that really, that really worked out well. I, I don't think it did. <laughs> Actually, I know it didn't because we continue on the story of, of, of David. And Saul just comes right back. And we see that in verse 22. It's alluded to. So David swears unto Saul. He says, I will do this, Saul. I won't kill your offspring. But look about where they go. And Saul went home, and David and his men got them up into the hold. It's a fancy way of saying they went to the stronghold in, in Getty. They didn't go home with Saul. It wasn't like, oh, lock arms. We're going together. We can go back home. Everything's back to normal. That's not at all what happens. He says, Saul, I'm, I'm glad. And I, I promise I won't kill your offspring, but I'm not going back with you. I'm going back to my stronghold because you're not in your right mind. And I know that you're, you're still... A wicked man and I'm still having these standards he doesn't just blindly trust and we see Saul does shift later again but David doesn't let his enemy whom he loved control him you know there's this question I was thinking I was like what if David did kill Saul what would have happened because the temptation is like oh well nothing it would have all been fine he would have been king and everybody would have been happy think about how it would have changed his kingship Think about starting off a kingship disobeying God it doesn't usually go well Think about his reputation. You don't think that would spread? 600 men wouldn't go tell him, yeah, David killed him in his helpless, vulnerable state. Some people would be like, yeah, he deserved it. And other people would be like, David, that's not what you're supposed to do. And also think about David's guilt and how he would feel, oh, I did this. And it stuck with him for the rest of life. There's no going back. We see that David made a choice. I can say, without a doubt, we have all Gotten hurt by others. In fact, Jesus says this will happen to Christians. And there's this so subtle of a temptation to get them back. It's so subtle that we don't think, oh, that's not a big I don't, I don't do that. And when we, think, we, we tend to think that it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to the world to be when someone wrongs you to show them kindness back. That's very counterintuitive. That was, not, that was revolutionary when Jesus said to love your enemies. What people did is, you hurt me. I'm not showing you kindness and mercy. I'm going to bring you down. You put me in the hospital, I'm going to put you into the morgue. Like, we're going to make this even worse. And, and I'm going to make this person regret crossing me. But maybe I'm the only one, but I don't believe I am. Because we struggle so much with wanting to avenge ourselves. And I know this, is, this happens because Paul addresses it very clearly in Scripture. Very clearly saying, hey, church, you're struggling with this. Humans more so struggle with this. Romans twelve nineteen says, Dearly beloved... Avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That beloved there is interesting because it seems like he's referring to Christians. He's talking to Christians. Don't avenge and say, I'll take care of it. No, give it to God. And, you know, I think about that and I say, well, why does God get to be the judge? Because he's perfect and just. He's the best judge. He's the only one we would truly want as judge. You know, revenge is, is a detrimental disease. And, and it says that I am worth more than you, and rather than you experiencing the same grace of Christ I experienced, me giving that to you, I want you to face wrath and, and pain. And it's so selfish. And it's like revenge is as if we're any better, right? Because I get mad at someone, but I conveniently forgot just an hour ago the awful and selfish thing I committed, and I did. I think mean, this person way worse than me. And I forget the two sins I just committed even three seconds ago. The reality is we're all deserving of judgment. Romans 6.23 says that. For the wages of sin is death. We all deserve it. We all have wronged God. Us, our enemies, our friends, we must be punished. You can't leave out the verse, right? You can't can't stop there because it gets too good. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have grace. God showed us grace. We deserved punishment. But what happened is, is, is that God showed mercy. And by showing mercy, he, he didn't throw out the justice. The justice had to be been satisfied. His wrath had to be satisfied. That's why Jesus came and took that punishment. And we get to experience God's mercy. Jesus took the wrath for us. How dare we seek revenge for our small problems and forget the grace that saved us from God's wrath and eternal destruction? Revenge has no place in a Christian's life. It, it doesn't work with Christianity. It falls apart. You know, David had, had some choices to make. He had a choice whether he was going to follow the crowd or he was going to follow our conscience. You have that same choice. You follow what the, what the crowd is doing or what God tells you to do. You got to make the choice of, am, am I going to leave it alone and just stay in the falsehood? Or am I going to deal with it and promote the truth? Am I going to, to disobey God? What he, I know he's telling me. He's been very clear what he's told me to do. Or am I going to surrender to what he said? Am I going to take matters into my own hands? Or am I going to give it over to God? The choices you make indicate whether you are, are following God's will. See, at the core of all of these choices is that David was truly, truly surrendered over to God's will. He said it is God's way... God's truth, God's plan, God's timing. And we so often think about our own way and that I I go the way I want to do. Ignore the problems, ignore God's plan. It doesn't matter who I hurt in the path as long as it's, it's about me. And what we see through this example of David is that he had a surrendered heart. I hope you have the desire as well to have this surrendered heart where you say, I'm making this choice in my life through these temptations that will come up. It's not an if, it's a when. But when these temptations come up, I'm going to surrender. You know, the choice is simple. It's going to be your way on your timetable. And that's often how we think, right? That, that we're, we're, it's, it's my way or the highway and it's my timing and things have to happen the way I want them to go. That's not biblical, that's not scriptural, that's not godly. It's the next part that really just like, oh, it's awesome. God's plan for God's glory. Because what that says, it's no longer about me, but it's about his plan that leads way better than I could ever go. And then I give him the glory for it because this is our God. Who's better than him? No one. So may I just trust him and surrender because his plan, his timing is better. It's God's plan for God's glory. You know, what dictated his choices is that David knew he needed God alone. And we need to surrender to God alone. If you will, bow your head and and close your eyes with me.